Blog Talk Radio. Make your holiday list and check it twice with Mayor Johnson Gift Giving Guide. Mayor Johnson is your special education super source, and with their gift guide, they've made it easy to shop three different ways by price, category, or specific solution. The perfect present for your special child is just to click away at mayorjohnson.com. That's mayor-johnson.com. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any host or guest's individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Bright Not Broken radio show. We invite you tonight, this evening, uh, to join us as we have a very lively discussion following up on our talk from last week about the diagnostic manual, the DSM, about the construct of the DSM, how it affects our children, the labels they receive. Uh, We've got some wonderful guests this evening who are both clinicians and researchers, Dr. William Sheehan, Dr. Stephen Thurber. They have written a wonderful, wonderful paper that led us to uh, a lot of research we did for our book and our chapter in the Layman's Guide to the DSM. And the title of their paper was Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder and Scientific Epistemology. All right, Becky, help me with that word. (laughs) Epistemology. Epistemology. There we go. I've got it. I know I'm looking right at it. That's ADHD and Scientific Epistemology. Uh, We are so excited to have these gentlemen this evening. They are also um, uh, clinicians with the state of Minnesota, one of the only neurodevelopmental uh, disorders uh, clinics in the state of Minnesota, where they uh, do research and uh, practice in these areas of um, neurodevelopmental disorders. They also are award-winning researchers in neuroimaging. Um, They have been uh, practicing for several years and researching about these important topics, but specifically uh, they have a lot to say in their paper about ADHD, and I know several of our listeners and so many of our readers and followers are um, plagued by the issue of ADHD and why do we get so much comorbidity. And with that, I'm going to let uh, Rebecca give us a little bit of recap on our um, previous episode last week, which will get us into this evening, and we can introduce our guests. Thanks, Diane. Last week we talked about the DSM and how it changed paradigms from DSM-2 
to uh, DSM-3 in 1980. And before 1980, DSM was set up more taking a practitioner-based approach in that the clinicians more or less defined the disorders, um, the larger syndromes that, that carried the diagnostic weight. And in 1980, because the shift researchers needed more strict uh, categories and clearer guidelines, um, and they wanted to standardize the diagnoses, they shifted DSM-3 to more of a researcher-based, uh, top-down, if you will, approach to creating these disorders or labeling these disorders and categorizing them. And when they shifted, they also came up with three particular criteria that the system had to meet in order to be a valid system. In fact, um, a reliable system, reliability and validity go hand in hand with this. And when they went to shift to DSM-3, they argued that DSM-2 was unreliable because from clinician to clinician, the results of if the same patient were to present, they may not get the same diagnosis. So that was part of the argument for DSM-3. So when scientists talk about reliability, that's one criterion that they used to say that this is a sound, sound categorical system or a sound system that we're developing. And reliability means that the same results can be reproduced in different clinical settings. The second criterion that came up with was validity. There are four types of validity. In our book, we talk about construct validity, meaning that the disease or the disorder that is uh, labeled or named, be it ADHD, autism, bipolar, has um, distinct and clear boundaries from other diseases or disorders or from natural or normal behavior. And then the last criterion that they came up with was utility, meaning that it would be usable, um, how useful the description of a disease or disorder is in terms of communicating essential information about it and in terms of how well it predicts the treatment and the outcome if a person should receive a label. So that's, in short, what we covered and discussed last week. And this week, as we move into uh, our interview with Dr. Sperber and Sheehan, we're going to explore the DSM and the constructs of, of um, ADHD in particular because it is the single largest disorder of childhood. So, gentlemen, welcome to our show. Thank you. Great pleasure to be and with you. Oh, and if you don't mind for our listeners, could you identify yourself so they can distinguish your voices? Yeah, yeah. I'm Bill Sheehan, a psychiatrist. Uh, Stephen Thurber, psychologist. Okay. Well, um, I want to just jump in and ask you all. Once You once commented that the DSM as a system for classifying mental disorders is ill-conceived. But from a layperson's standpoint, as parents, it seems like having a diagnostic system for mental conditions that's based on categories with distinct disorders makes perfect sense. After all, this is how physical illnesses are diagnosed. In your opinion, what are the limitations to the categorical approach, and why do you believe it's poorly conceptualized? Well, let me let me start out just because uh, and this is Dr. Sheehan. Uh, a little bit about the historical background of DSM because I think it's important to place the document in the time in which it uh, arose. And uh, when, when DSM-3 came out in 1980, there was a lot of excitement about it because prior to that, th there had been a great deal of idiosyncratic diagnosing that was done by various clinicians mm -hmm. where they more or less uh, 
even, even clinicians that might work together in the same setting uh, had disagreeable uh, ideas to one another about what they were actually dealing with. So, so uh, the psychoanalysis was still very uh, yeah. powerful at the time. There was a lot of discussion of, you know, the psychodynamic conflicts and so on. And uh, so, so there was a, a number of developments in the 1970s that led uh, psychiatrists and psychologists to want to formulate a diagnostic scheme where, where uh, people could agree about the, the uh, diagnoses they were discussing. So from that standpoint, DSM seemed to be promising. Uh, the the uh, main achievement of DSM-3 and the other iterations of it is that they were able to achieve the standard of reliability. Now, reliability only means that a number of different people can agree that they're they're dealing with the same basic thing. Now, let me give you an example of that. Uh, you, you could probably get a whole number of people in a room to agree that a unicorn was a horse that had a horn in the middle of its head. They, they would be reliably agreeing that that would be a unicorn. On the other hand, it doesn't really have anything to do with the concept of validity. In other words, if unicorns don't exist, it doesn't really matter whether or not you can agree mm -hmm. as to what they are. So, so w would you agree with that, Dr. Thurber? Yes, I would, and I'd like to add just one thing here. The kappa coefficient, it's called, is a statistic that relates to the degree of agreement among judges or among diagnost diagnosticians, psychiatrists, psychologists. Now, the degree of agreement corrected for chance for the childhood disorders in DSM-3 was 52. Mm. So if you had 10 mental health professionals independently diagnose the same patient or client, there would be about 50% agreement among them. Now, the reliability for the adult disorders was higher, but it's noteworthy that for children and adolescents, that's very low reliability. You want at least 80% agreement, preferably above 90. Well, well and I think that's another important point to, to raise, and that is that the DSM, as, as you mentioned, was originally designed for researchers. And so what researchers were looking for were very homogeneous populations, in other words, populations uh, where, where the members of the group were very well sifted out and had a lot of similarities to each other. Uh, they, they weren't patients uh, that would have been real-world subjects. They were specifically uh, chosen because of the unique characteristics that made them suitable for research purposes. And uh, also, these were academicians. These were people that, for the most part, were a bit uh, different in their orientation, what they were interested in, than clinicians sitting in an office with real patients. So uh, to, to a large extent, uh, the research was done on an artificially selected group. Another problem mm -hmm. with DSM is that it was designed really to be a diagnostic model similar to other models in medicine. Uh, for instance, you know, in infectious disease, one can agree uh, to the cause of a disease by uh, identifying the pathogen. What, what is the bacterium, for instance, or the virus that's underlying that, or a pathological finding in, in say, cancer or other things where you can show a specific tissue um, abnormality. The problem then, in 1980, and the problem today in 2012, is that there are no known 
uh, clinical factors that can be tested for to distinguish one disorder from another. Uh, instead, we still have diagnoses defined by symptoms, in other words, subjective things uh, that people either self-report or that uh, clinicians ask about. And, and so that introduces a tremendously large uh, variable of subjectivity into these diagnoses. So may I, may I ask a quick question? When you were asking, Surely. when you mentioned the clinicians um, diagnosing these, the screening tools that are used, are these also part and parcel of of the academicians' work in trying to define these, so that the screening tools are also looking for a more homogenous population. Well, that would be correct, and it's uh, it's encouraging that the measurement instruments are improving, okay. but that doesn't necessarily improve these the reliability of the diagnostic classifications. Okay. Uh, one thing I wanted to mem uh, to mention, and this is uh, Dr. Thurber. With the uh, categories, let's just take one of these diagnostic categories, uh, oppositional defiant. You have eight symptoms that are listed, and the client must have four out of the eight to be classified. Okay, so that's one issue. But you could have two patients, two children, both classified as having oppositional defiant disorder, one has the first four symptoms, and the second patient has the second four. So they have the same disorder, but totally different symptoms. So that's another problem with this classification system. Well, and, the, and that also raises another issue. The, the original expectation was that the, the whole idea of categorical diagnoses means that there aren't going to be major overlaps. In other words, mm -hmm. The, the, the groups should really be somewhat um, isolated from uh, other groups of patients that have other diagnoses. Uh, eventually, w what was found is that a lot of the symptoms overlapped. In other words, patients with ADHD also had symptoms of other diagnoses, including oppositional defiant disorder, including um, autism, an autism uh, spectrum. The other thing is the spectrum disorders. Uh, came into play, and what a spectrum is is essentially a distribution where you might have every everything from very prominent symptoms that uh, lead to a great deal of uh, difficulty and that are quite easy to pick out, or you may have very subtle symptoms. Uh, and 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 so as soon as you start describing spectrums, you introduce the possibility of overlaps with other diagnoses, and uh, this is really kind of the um, most typical case nowadays. I, I just had a patient that came in today who uh, had uh, some significant neurological issues that had been present since birth, but came from actually quite quite a, a well-respected institution with the diagnoses of autism spectrum, bipolar, and ADHD, mm -hmm. and was on six different medications. And, right. and these kinds of patients actually are more uh, common than not, uh, where, where you have multiple diagnoses, and uh, we, we can talk more about the uh, circularity of, of that and some of the treatments as well. But uh, we, we no longer are seeing kids that meet the original DSM standard of having categorical diagnoses that exclude them from other groups of patients. Instead, they overlap, and, and uh, often kids come in with several of these diagnoses simultaneously being diagnosed.
Can I, if I can jump in with a question here, this is Diane. I, I have a question that pertains to that. How, what would you say is the percentage you also see of not just diagnoses being added together, but of trading diagnoses? Uh, we hear a lot of that, of going mm-hmm. from ADHD to an autism spectrum or vice versa and sort of swapping. How, how does that come into play? Well, well, I think for one thing, this shows that there's a major problem with the diagnostic formulation. Uh, during the 90s, for instance, uh, that, that was really probably when ADHD was uh, being diagnosed with a great deal of regularity, uh, often on uh, very, very slender grounds, uh, you know, by pediatricians, family physicians, who might spend only a few minutes with, with the child and base the diagnosis largely on uh, very, very subjective reports from parents and teachers, for instance, and uh, introduce a stimulant medication. Then then in the early 2000s, things switched uh, to to bipolarity. Uh, This this was a period of time when a lot of kids who really had disturbances of mood and uh, conduct, which is not an unusual thing to see among children even developing normally, uh, we're being given this diagnosis of bipolar, and that opened up the floodgates for a, a whole another set of medications to be introduced to these children, uh, which one had previously used with quite a bit of trepidation even among adults. And, and now, more recently, we're definitely seeing the um, autism spectrum become the most fashionable diagnoses. And, and so one can follow these kids over a period of time and, and see them sort of move from one diagnostic category into the next just based on sort of the uh, trends of, of these diagnostic categories as they've emerged. And it's, it leads me to wonder what the next fad is going to be. Yes. Well, may I also ask a question in conjunction with the changing diagnostic categories? One thing we talk about is dimensional assessment and dimensional diagnosis. And one thing, one um trend that I've noticed in research is that when the the powers that we talk about dimensional diagnosis, they're still trying to stay within the categorical system, dimensionally within the categories. Yet you're talking about cross-categorical, which as outsiders, that seemed to be the trend with um, children getting multiple labels from several categories that it made sense to us that dimensional diagnosis or dimensional assessment should be cross-categorical. Could you comment on that? Well, I I think one of the uh, issues uh, really is, as you pointed out, that the researchers that are involved in this are coming from a very different position than than clinicians. In fact, there was, I, I was just, perusing uh, the latest issue of Nature, and there was an article actually by a researcher, biomedical researcher, saying meet patients to get your motivation back. And what, what he was saying is that researchers often spend a great deal of their time in laboratories, uh, you know, do, doing things that have very little to do with contact with patients. On the other hand, clinicians are in an office where they may be seeing 10, 12, 16 kids a day, uh, for very short periods of time, and uh, you know, so so whereas the researchers' approach may be very meticulous, and uh, you know, one one would hope very pure and very 
uh, rigorous, the, the clinician uh, neither has the time nor perhaps the interest uh, to, to follow those kinds of subtleties. And one of the unintended consequences of DSM, and we use this term in our paper, is that a lot of these abstract categories became reified. In other words, mm -hmm. what happened was these abstractions were treated as if they were the concrete realities rather than the patients. And uh, a number of uh, sort of things, funny things happened on the way to the forum. One was that the managed care entities got hold of this document of DSM and were principally interested in using this to determine what services they, they were willing to pay for. So, so the DSM categories became necessary uh, for, for applying for any kind of funding for patients to get care. The other thing, of course, is that pharmaceuticals uh, got involved in this in a big way. And as soon as you can pigeonhole people into categories, essentially you have the necessary ingredients to set up an assembly line where, where basically you can move uh, people down uh, the assembly uh, as products. You can define what particular category of product they're going to be, uh, give them a very um, simplistic and specified treatment, and move them down the, the road. And that certainly increases economic um, returns, but it doesn't do very much justice if you believe that the child that you care about and love is something other than a commodity that's being pushed on an assembly line. And, and unfortunately, uh, the, the diagnoses really have gotten way out of hand from the standpoint that uh, we're now giving these kids labels and um, taking very complex kinds of issues and simplifying them to the point where to, to call them cartoonish would be actually um, an exaggeration. Uh, just a comment on the overlapping of dimensions and things of this nature. There, there is an issue with children that you don't see with adults, and this is a valid consideration. If a child is anxious, he or she is likely also to be depressed. These overlap in reality, and in fact, uh, many of us use the term negative affectivity rather than anxiety and depression, because the two types of emotional problems do co-occur in reality, and as the child develops and grows, then these become more distinctive unless they are treated effectively. So there are actual overlapping kinds of symptoms. The ill-conceived aspect of DSM is that they did not look at distinctive characteristics. They didn't look at the symptoms that just converge together and are distinctive from other symptoms. Rather, they came up with these broad terms without thinking of the possibility of extreme overlap and that's why we get these problems with comorbidity in the diagnoses. And I think if I can jump in here for a second, and one of the issues that we covered last week as well was talking about sometimes it's a matter of 
defining your terms. And when we become comfortable with these diagnostic terms, ADHD or autistic spectrum disorders, I mean, certainly for the layperson, but even more so, a lot of times we've heard professionals say, I know autism when I see it. I know ADHD when I see it. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves, and I think it's what's caused a lot of the confusion. Well, that may be one example of one person's idea, but are they defining it um, by these symptoms exclusively belonging to that category. Does that does that make sense? Yes, very much so. And so we all get confused when we're defining a disorder by what one's perception may be. And I think, as, as you're pointing out here, uh, perception may not be reality if we have symptoms that are being exclusively defined in, say, two different, at least two different disorders, if not more. Yes, we would agree. Well, well, then I I think actually you made this point very well, uh, the two of you in your book, um, Bright Not Broken, and that that is just the the way that DSM was constructed by experts. So it's it's based on authorities, uh, and and most people put a great deal of trust in in, uh, you know authorities to get it right. And and these uh, various terms like ADHD, um, childhood bipolar disorder, um, autism spectrum have have all become really terms that are are norms in the culture. I mean, we all think Mm -hmm. in terms of these things. Uh, They're pervasive concepts. There's a great deal of advertising that one sees in, in even popular journals, for instance, about, say, ADHD and the treatments. So it's very easy for a person uh, to think that this is a, a valid diagnosis, that there's no question about it, that uh, uh, the science is in, in agreement with it, and that it can be readily uh, identified and treated by appropriate professionals. And so I, I think that that's one of the problems, is just that people really have... Uh, kind of come to accept these kinds of things on the basis of authority without being in a position to examine the tra- uh, the, the facts behind it as, as the two of you have done so brilliantly. Well, we thank you. We're very humbled by those statements. Thank you. And- you know, we um, we are pretty determined when we dig for an answer, and I think, you know, one of the quotes we uh, put in the book at the beginning of the chapter, Layman's Guide to DSM, was Einstein said um, that the the greatest um, the the greatest question of um, the greatest enemy of truth is unquestioning. Um, respect for authority and and we've got to really look at that and I think that's what you're saying that you know we do have to question we can't just blindly accept it and I, I think as well um, as the professional dialogue really heats up as we near this, these changes with the new DSM, I'm really, really pleased to see that um, people within the profession are also questioning whether or not we can go forward with something that um, that just seems to be causing more problems than it's solving. And we're getting back to, to science. Uh, in our article, we mentioned uh, the Latin phrase, nullius and verba, which is the motto of the first scientific body, the Royal Society of London. And mm-hmm. that motto means truth doesn't come from authority, not by the words of one person in power. 
And that, that's what we mean by epistemology, the criteria we use for truth and knowledge. And some in our society use the criteria that knowledge is only the province of people who have power positions and are authoritative. That's not science. Well, well and, and just building on that, originally, I think, at least as I recall, and you know, it's a long time ago now, but when DSM-3 came out in 1980, it was proposed as an atheoretical document. It was really, I think, uh, designed to be very malleable, very open to reinterpretation. And unfortunately, uh, think things changed. And, and uh, now I really think that, as, as you point out in your book, it, it has become so influential uh, and it interdigitates with so many aspects of healthcare, uh, bo both the economics of healthcare. Uh, the, the way that services are rendered, uh, the, the various treatments that are offered, that it's almost really like what we hear about with regard to, for instance, the banks, you know, that, that it's too big to fail. So uh, rather than scrapping it and realizing that it served its purpose, but we need to think this afresh and maybe take a completely different approach to diagnosing and working with children, we, we continue to hobble along, you know, a generation after the first DSM uh Three, three uh, came on the scene with, with a, an instrument that a lot of people have serious reservations about it, and, and yet it's like a juggernaut, you know, that's going down the tracks that no one seems to be able to stop. And, and I do agree with you that at this point it's really questionable, not not only whether it's useful, but whether or not it may be at this point something that's doing more harm than it's doing good to the patients that have to be diagnosed within this framework. That's if, right. If I'm right. Oh, go ahead, Rebecca. Well, I was just well, going to say quickly that I just wanted to mention uh, Marianne Russo, who runs the Coffee Clatch Network and has been after this um, subject almost as doggedly as we have. And she has had uh, Dr. Alan Francis on, who was um, part of, as you know, of the of DSM-4. And, um, you know, he's been very outspoken about it. And I think um, as we continue to just bring this to the public forefront is, is what needs to be done. And um, go ahead, Rebecca. I just wanted to add well, that about I, Dr. Francis. I was um, simply going to ask if it wouldn't be better conceptualized um, going back to larger syndromes. I dream of a day, perhaps, this is too idealistic, of when all researchers and clinicians, not all of them, but nonpartisan groups can get together and compare what the clinicians are seeing with what the researchers are finding and redefine, instead of these narrow symptom sets, looking at larger syndromes where we look at the developmental course of a child and, and can pretty well predict perhaps that, that these are some likelihood, that these are some likely outcomes and develop therapies and educational interventions as well as, um, you know, medications that that are based upon both clinical experience as well as research rather than just one or the other. Because up to this point, it seems like the initial paradigm was strictly clinical research and still stuck in the Freudian era. era and then they shifted and it's strictly, you know, research-based and from top down. Um, what do you, you know, where's the solution to this? Because it, it's certainly... Uh, like you said, a juggernaut, and well, well, I think it's, it, 
Yeah, you've pinpointed some very important things. One is that we do know a tremendous amount now about neurodevelopment, and, and we, we have articulated some of the processes that were completely unknown as, as uh, recently as, say, 1990. I mean, we, we've now had you know, uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging showing uh, the way that the brain develops during um, you know, infancy and childhood and into adolescence and, and young adulthood. And uh, we've, we've discovered a lot of things that were hitherto unanticipated. Uh, for instance, just the fact that the brain continues to uh, develop much later than, than we previously thought. I think we, we alluded a little bit to this earlier, but uh, a lot of the kids that are being diagnosed with the, these various conditions e either have specific syndromes. Um, in, in many cases, the kids that we see have uh, specific genetic uh, conditions that we can identify, and yet they, they still tend to be thrown into these broader categories. And, and uh, we're, we're increasingly discovering that a lot of these kids have had uh, specific brain trauma, you know, either perinatal uh, trauma such as hypoxia, which is often not investigated for obvious reasons, or, or outright head trauma, uh, brain injuries. So uh, I, I think that uh, one of the problems with the DSM is that it, it really is oversimplifying these complexities. That it, it sort of stuns people into ceasing to investigate at the outset rather than encouraging them to ask more questions and to define more uh, answers. And, uh, and the other thing is that the medications that are used, I think, have a, a tremendous downside that people are uh, not, not aware of. I mean, I see a lot of kids, for instance, that have been put on atypical antipsychotics who have developed metabolic syndromes. Uh, there's concerns about there there are concerns about the way that uh, stimulant medications may over the long haul um, affect the kids' motivations. Uh, so so you know I think I think we're we're really skating on thin ice you know by by pushing forward with a scheme that doesn't really um, e even answer to what we know now based on the best science. And don't you also with with what we've learned and the neuroimaging and knowing the developmental course, no one can predict when a medication is introduced in a developing brain, when there will be irreparable change caused to that development or whether that change will be good or bad. Um, and when we, we put these medications in children, it, it is a very, to me it seems very dangerous because we don't know what the brain is doing on its growth trajectory, and at any point when you do introduce a foreign substance into the mix, we don't know how we're altering that person's life outcome. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's spot on. I mean, it, it's just like if a person is uh, making an investment. I mean, you know, if you put money in a certain stock and you don't know how that's going to turn out for 20 years, uh, you know, you're, you're probably not going to get a high, high yield of interest on that, right? Um, on the other hand, if it's a very uh, risky stock, uh, you know, you may lose your shirt on it. And, and unfortunately, we're sort of, you know, betting our shirts on, on some strategies that aren't proven. And, you know, it, we're not sure whether these are things that are going to be helpful or, or whether in the long run they may actually do more damage to the child. And, and part of that is that each child is unique. I mean, one, one of the things that I strive for, and, and Dr. Thurber also because he's a colleague of mine and this is the way our program works, we, we want to define each child that comes to us in very individualized terms. Each child 
is unique. Each child has his own story or her own story. And, and we also try to assess the child across multiple domains. We look at the child in, in cognitive domains and not just looking at verbal or, or performance uh, IQs, which is typically what academic kinds of people look at, but we look at working memory, we look at uh, processing speed. We try to define the child's personality. We, we look at the child in the context of of uh, the people around them, the, the schools they're in, the family members that they interact with, the interests they have, and all of those things are important to define the child. And I, I don't personally feel that I've done my job in creating a document about a child unless I can characterize that child. I'd, I'd like to think the way a novelist might, too uniquely define that child that, so that someone reading a document that I've generated could actually kind of picture what that child was like and uniquely so compared to anyone else. And, and so many reports are, are, that are generated that use DSM terminology and uh, DSM prescribed treatments are generic. You, you can read a score of these and, and you never have a clear picture of a person emerging from all of the jargon. Well, I I'd like to interject there to say that you know we certainly applaud you for that that method and I know that um that your method uh, certainly echoes what Dr. Lorna Wing has been advocating for for several years in autism and of course uh, we'll be having her on later um this month to talk about with Judith uh, Dr. Judith Gould also to talk about the DSM but of course um they believe exactly as you do that you've got to take the whole picture into account. You've got to look at the strengths and the weaknesses and and go beyond the standardized uh, methods. Uh, and I'd also like to jump in here, um, and I know maybe I'm beating you to the punch here, uh, Rebecca, with getting into this, but I think we have to specifically address ADHD as we've talked a little bit about it. I know uh, for us, going all the way back to our first book, it, it's been the largest source of controversy and the largest source of pain and frustration for parents who sometimes get trapped inside that diagnostic label despite the best efforts of those that, that seek to help them. And so much of the medication um, problems that we spoke about that are so easily uh, being used in multiple ways tend to fall in line with um, with a child who has given an ADHD diagnosis. And so that we're clear uh, in your paper, as you, um, you do have a wonderful critique of ADHD as a valid disorder, I think if you could clarify um, for our listeners that that the problems, the symptoms that are defined are very real. We're not saying that uh, these people aren't experiencing real problems. We're saying that the diagnostic term may not be the most useful or most helpful in understanding those symptoms. Am I correct? Yes, I, I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an, another body of the World Health Organization and their International Classification of Disease that they've they've gone through these same procedures of coming up with a cluster of symptoms based on authoritative edicts. But it's interesting that in their system, used mainly in Europe and uh, increasingly in the United States, it's hyperkinetic disorder, not ADHD. So a whole different term for it, even though these two organizations, the ESM and the ICD organizations, tried to get two systems to coincide. 
in America, ADHD has subcategories. So you can have a attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, uh, mainly inattention, or mainly uh, impulsivity. They don't have that system in Europe. Okay. Uh, in in Europe, they're they're more exclusive. So if a, a child has depression or another disorder, he or she cannot be classified as having ADHD. In the United States, we don't have that, that kind of an approach. So we have subtypes that have never been researched and documented as being subtypes, and we're placing children in those subtype categories. So that, in part, is what we mean by a problem in this area of diagnosis. The two major systems are not in agreement with each other. Now, do these symptoms, the holy trinity, we sometimes call them of, of ADHD, do they co-occur in individuals? Uh, yes, they do. But do they co-occur in both home and school across situations? Do they co-occur over time? Those are, are issues that typically are, are not addressed when we place a child in this classification. Well, let me ask you very quickly. One thing that I noticed is that the model for ADHD changed through um, DSM-3 in the revision to DSM-4-TR, and now um, some of the leading researcher, one leading researcher, Dr. Barkley, is even thinking about looking at it more as a disorder of executive function, but there have been changing models leading to those subtypes. Um, I guess one thing that's a cha uh, challenge for parents to understand is how the models of disorders can change if the, mo if the disorders themselves are concrete. It's almost like a contradiction that proves that the system isn't as um, well con conceived as, as we're led to believe. Would you agree or? Yeah, yes, I would. Now, so we went from attention deficit disorder to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Why did that happen? Well, in part because we're talking about committees here. Okay. So one committee didn't view hyperactivity as an issue in the disorder. The next committee for DSM-4 did. So we're talking about truth via authority and via consensus and negotiation in terms of the committees that decide what these disorders are going to be. Now, in addition to that, these committees can be sensitive to changing models in science, and that can also influence changes from one, one edition of the DSM manual to the next. I need also to mention that the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in the U.S. is also influenced by what is going on in the International Classification of Disease. So they go back and forth, influencing one another, and you get changes as a result. Well, well and I think what you're talking about, uh, you know, not, not to uh, uh, critique any individual, but uh, you know, models, for instance, that look at ADHD as a disorder of prefrontal cortex, for instance. I mean, the, the, these are uh, hypothetical constructs. Uh, they, they may have some, uh, you know, logical consistency. They, they may have 
uh, you know, construct validity in their own terms. But a lot of the research that uh, leads to the development of these models is, is, of course, incorporated into the models, and then the models in turn uh, come around full circle and predict the kinds of phenomena that were used to construct them. And, and I think one, one of the issues about the prefrontal cortex model is, as we now know, in young children in which ADHD is the most commonly encountered, the prefrontal cortex has not yet been fully myelinated, so it's not yet online. And, and it seems that other uh, parts of the brain that are already uh, wired up, for instance, uh, subcortical brain circuits like the globus pallidus, which seems to be important in this, basal ganglia, th these things may actually be more significant in young children uh, than, than the prefrontal cortex. So, uh, you know, in, increasingly I think we need to understand more the way that the circuitry develops in the brain. Uh, what, what are age-appropriate uh, kinds of uh, expectations for what this uh, circuitry is able to accomplish? And also realizing that uh, each child uh, traverses this trajectory in, in his or her own uh, way and in his, his or her own uh, time. And another circularity, I think, is the way that certain medications, for instance, like the stimulants, seem to help with these conditions, which in a naive view, and this is a view, unfortunately, that a lot of pediatricians may uphold, uh, they, they say, well, let's let's give it a try. Maybe this will help. No harm done. If the child has the condition, the stimulant will help with it. If he doesn't, well, then, then we'll stop the medication and, and uh, uh, nothing nothing is, is uh, the worse for it. Well, unfortunately, as you point out in, in your book very well, uh, these kind of stimulant medications are nonspecific. They, they um, accentuate attention in certain, uh, particularly attention for monotonous, repetitive kinds of boring tasks, even in normal kids. And there was, uh, within the last two weeks, I think, an article in the New York Times about um, uh, pre-collegians pre taking stimulant medication in order to improve their performance on college entrance exams. And this has now become a rampant problem. So, you know, it's 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 really... The, the, the worrisome aspect of this is that there's a lot of circular reasoning, um, uh, both in terms of the way the models are developed and also in terms of the way that people assess the validity of the construct based on the nonspecific response to certain types of treatments. But, but these models may be uh, independent of the classification of the disorder. So this is where the researchers enter in. So they formulate models of how the disorder may have started, say, models related to the brain and the circuitry. Then they're testing out the models, where, whereas the DSM remains the same in terms of the diagnostic criteria. Perhaps these models, if they become well-established, and in our article we make the big point that many of these models cannot be disproven. They cannot be refuted, so they're not really scientific. But if they ever get a scientific model, that could influence the next edition of DSM. And we uh, we have a, th a theoretical model which can be refutable related to working memory, which we think has promise in this regard. But we'd be just as happy if it were if it were <laughs> disproved, because then it would prove that it was a scientific construct. And we have set up right. step by step criteria to disprove it. And that's the route we need to take. And if we try and try to disprove and disprove, and many independent people keep trying to disprove it and they can't, 
then we will accept it tentatively and probabilistically as a valid model. Well, and it is interesting because, as I initially uh, stated, you know, the reason for DSM was a, was largely disillusionment with Freudian uh, conceptions. You know, um, mm -hmm. psychodynamic conflicts, the ego, the id. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and unfortunately, we've sort of come full circle now with with the DSM because now now we're talking about these kinds of constructs uh, for which we can't really provide any kind of visible evidence in in neurocircuitry. Uh, we we are talking about collections of symptoms which are vague and uh, uh, poorly defined. So so in a sense, we're back to where we started with DSM and. And I really do think that the next stage, if, if uh, we're honest with ourselves, is to uh, scrap it and, and go back to what we do know. And and, uh, and and that's really what we found out about the neurodevelopmental process and the, the way kids uh, grow and change through the lifespan. Well, and one thing that I found interesting, like getting back to refutation and that idea is one we don't find a lot of studies trying to refute these disorders. It's more to confirm them. And um, is 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 that something that you all found as well? I, I I have not found many people or researchers who go out to say and disprove this particular disorder does or does not exist. Um, or Instead, the studies tend to confirm, like you said, the models that they have, then they'll adjust whatever, and so that the DSM and the model itself feeds on it. Why do you think that, that there's such a a lack of uh, effort in that area, if you will, for well, want of a better word? Uh, science is supposed to eliminate human bias. And one of those biases is confirmation, confirmation bias. And that means you only gather information that is likely to confirm your hypothesis. It means that if you have a preconception that a child has a certain disorder, then you selectively process information and gather only information that supports that presupposition. That's confirmation bias. Again, it's anti-science. So, yes, that's what we are seeing, and that's why we, in part, wrote the article. We were seeing research designed to gather information in support of the hypothesis and not to refute. Well, and it's a complicated issue. Uh, it, we can't go into all the ramifications of it. But let me just take one piece of that, and that is the way that clinicians are trained, and that includes myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, typically, uh, the way that a, a clinician is trained is that they work under the auspices of a more established clinician and authority in the field, and, and they point out to you what are the things that you should be able to identify as part of your uh, practice. Um, you know, th this, this patient comes to you, this patient has ADHD. What is ADHD? And you're asked to uh, recite some of the symptoms, uh, whether inattentive, they're restless, they uh, are having trouble uh, with, with academic kinds of things, they're hyperactive, some of these kinds of things, and the, the proctor or the uh, teacher will say either very well then or they'll say you flunked. You, you go back to DSM and study up on your uh, uh, symptoms of ADHD and we'll look at some more patients. And you go through this for several years, you get a great deal of your information uh, from, from authorities such as uh, drug reps, 
that, that also embrace these kinds of concepts. And after you've done this for a while, you really do believe that you're seeing these kinds of things in your office. And it, it sometimes mm-hmm. uh, can be a bit of a shock when, when, for instance, somebody suggests that you're not actually seeing ADHD, but you're seeing a patient in your office that is presenting with these kinds of things. And that's what we mean by reification of a disorder. You, you start seeing the abstractions rather than uh, the, the entities that the abstraction are supposed to uh, explain. And, and, so, and, and furthermore, most clinicians are working in a setting where they're under huge pressures to see people in a very short period of time. And you remem- may remember these experiments that were done with what are called tachistoscopes. And what they are are... Uh, devices that show a very short exposure of something. And if you're predisposed, for instance, to think that you're going to see lemons, you'll see lemons even if what you're actually um, being shown in the tachistoscope are oranges. And and so so I think if if a person is Mm -hmm. in a uh, very high-pressured clinical setting where they don't have very much time to particularize the uh, situation, they're, they're going to use these generic concepts and, and they're also going to have confirmation bias. They, if they, they believe that ADHD is something that's real, that it's been validated, they, they will make this uh, disorder and they'll go home and sleep well at night and uh, not, not worry about it. Um, another issue when you talk about confirmation bias, and that is at the research level, people like Bill and myself, we want to publish, and we do publish a lot, <laughs> but it's very difficult to publish articles that don't offer confirmation of some hypothesis or some theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're, I'm sure you're well aware of that. And so if you want to publish and the publications determine tenure and, and employment possibilities and finances, then you typically have to confirm. Part of the part of the problem, though, also is that the diagnoses and, and the um, models of DS, uh, DSM um, ADHD in particular are, are too vague to be testable. Uh, you know, I, I think one could, for instance, uh, reformulate uh, this. This is a way, for instance, where you might say, well, if if it's prefrontal cortex, then this is what we expect of a model of ADHD. If it's say, subcortical, um, you know, circuitry, then we'd expect this. And you can actually design an experiment to, to break that apart and test that specific aspect of it. But the models are too vague. They're, they're easily confirmed. Uh, and, and uh, you know, ultimately a lot of it is based on subjective uh, reports. Um, there, there was just an article, for instance, in the New York Times, I think, again, about uh, wh- whether conservatives are happier than than liberals, and they said they were. Well, is that because of the way that they answer the questions, or you know, it's impossible to disprove. But the the point is, if if you're just going on self-report of symptoms, um, and the symptoms are vague, generic, I mean, I, I can't see how you could disprove that a person, uh, you know, has has ADHD. Um, and, and actually, I've seen cases. There's an increasing number of people coming forward with disorders by by proxy, what we used to call Munchausens in the physical sense, where, where neuropsychologists, psychologists, psychiatrists will make the diagnosis entirely based on the parents reporting these these right. subjective symptoms. And and how can you disprove that? Another right. example from DSM is. Uh, my favorite intermittent explosive disorder, 
Ah. And the presumed cause of that is an irresistible impulse to be aggressive. Now, how in the world can you investigate scientifically an irresistible impulse? So after a child behaves aggressively, you ask, did you have an impulse that you could not resist? There's no way scientifically to investigate that notion. It's a part of DSM, however. Well, I think that's that's where the parents' uh, frustration comes in because they go to a clinician or they read something about these disorders, as as the two of you did, and and it it seems to be well validated in that, but it doesn't work very well. And and you keep going back and you get modifications. What what used to be sort of in the case of uh, Ptolemy's theory of the Earth being the center of the universe, epicycles. You know, you can always come up with an adjunct hypothesis. And, and then and then you go through this process where you're continually adjusting medications. Let's go up on this. Maybe if we add a little of that, that'll help. And and so you spin your wheels for years and years. You, you don't feel like you're getting very much understanding of the child. And at the end of the day, you're not really sure whether or not you did any good for the child, or whether you'd been better off if you'd, uh, you know, sim- simply invested in um, in some, some other other kinds of activities than going to therapists. You know, I wanted to I wanted to mention something real quick because you you were making me remember um in in some of the early days when we were really searching for some hard answers and you know as as parents um like us who who get involved with you have more than one child diagnosed you're looking for different answers and um and I I've always been a bit of a scientist at heart um not professionally I'm not a researcher I'm not a physician but uh, science is very important to me because it is very concrete and sometimes it helps get away from the the bias that we can have whether we're um you know we're pleased with um a professional who's giving us an answer or displeased we have to really look at it objectively and I attended a congressional hearing uh, on the science of ADHD, and I was so excited that I was going to to be given some studies that would actually give me some confirmation to where I was really lost when I was not seeing the the um, the science, as you mentioned. It was very vague to me, and I really looked forward to it. And as the paper was given to me, my heart sank when I walked into the room, and then listening to previous or to the following testimony. The answer was given for the science in ADHD was because these important agencies say that it's so. Yeah. And I I found myself saying, I know I'm not a researcher, I know I'm not a physician, but this seems really silly to me. And I and of course I raised my hand and very boldly asked, where's the science we were going to talk about today? And uh, I I don't think I got a real direct answer, but. You know, it it was confusing, and I understand it was trying to offer public support. The American Academy of Pediatrics and the National Institute of Mental Health states that ADHD is very real, but those answers weren't weren't enough to really understand science for me. Well, well, let me ask you this: We're coming to the end because we've only have a couple of minutes left, so. From what you said, would you say that DSM itself is also a hypothetical construct? I, I think, well, it, it, it's um, at, at best one would say that it's a collection of uh, an, an attempt to, to systemize a collection of observations that, that aren't at a very deep level. I mean, it's uh, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I, I, I think that it's 
it's an archaic document already, even though it was only created uh, 30 years ago. I, I think that it's unfortunately an example of uh, human inertia that we're continuing to play around with it and, and to try to tinker with it. And, and it reminds me of a comment by Thomas Edison, and that is that a man will go to great ex uh, great lengths in order to avoid thinking. <laughs> well, my 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 comment is uh, the the term construct means just that you construct something, you you invent something. So I'd say that DSM is a series of inventions uh, of words that are very abstract and they're denotatively inexact, so they don't pinpoint a particular kind of symptom. They're too vague and abstract, and that's what a construct is. And research is meant to clarify the nature of the construct. And that needs to be done, and not enough of it is being done from a research standpoint. Yeah, I, I, th I would agree with that. I, th I think the main thing to emphasize is that it's, it's a, a, a very verbal uh, Entity. There's lots of words there, lots of definitions, and and in a sense, I think it falls prey to the old nominalist uh, paradox in philosophy, namely that people mistake names for things. Good point. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, we we have certainly appreciated your um, your wonderful insights and wisdom this evening. I know our listeners will gain so much more understanding to these issues that can be so confusing for us all. Well, we appreciate being on the program, and again, uh, our, our, uh, we continue to uh, appreciate your efforts to, to make these very complex and often perplexing things uh, available to, to people that are, are struggling with these in, in uh, schools and homes. Well, thank we, you so much. And we are so appreciative of, of that, and as we continue in our advocacy efforts, we certainly will pass on your words of wisdom, and, and hopefully, uh, I know we've had several parents tell us they have shared our work, and which in tune uh, shares your work with, with their care providers, and they're receiving very positive response. So as we continue to share and hopefully educate one another, um, we will will help the professionals. We, we're very careful to say that, you know, we we hate for anyone to be critical of their professional um, who is trying to help because they are trained and, um, you know, um, guided to use some of these concepts that we're discussing are so controversial. So a lot of times it's the don't shoot the messenger is what we're trying to tell our fellow parents. Mm -hmm. we, but we it's can the same time, but at the same time we're grateful for fresh insights and people who are willing to stand and take a different perspective so that parents can have a, a broader view of what may be affecting their children. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Yes, we thank you so much. Thank you for being on our, our radio program, and um, we will certainly keep your work in the in the forefront of our listeners and our readers as well, and keep them posted on on your future endeavors. You've been just um, very very valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You have a good evening. You too. Good night. Good night. Good night.